Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We could be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, Imperial Production presents the most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 21. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, a lot going on this week in sports. The Super Bowl is just a couple days away. We've had some NBA and MLB trades as well as we're recording this episode 21 on January 30th, just at the end of the month of January, and you know I'm excited for this week and what's come with the Super Bowl. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to be able to say Super Bowl. Remember the good old days, Nick, when we weren't allowed to even say Super Bowl on the radio, <laughs> and that silly role that existed. It's finally nice to say Super Bowl. And I just a heads up right now for anybody listening to the podcast or going to be listening to the podcast. If you want to start a drinking game and see how many times we say the word Super Bowl, you might as well throw a shot back. Yeah, it could be a while because we're going to begin with, of course. The Super Bowl talk between the New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles. Both teams were number one seeds going into the playoffs. Another consistent year with both number one seeds represent the AFC and NFC in the Super Bowl. I think it's only been one team since 2014 that hasn't been in the Super Bowl from the one seed. But obviously, Patriots led by Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, who are going for their sit Super Bowl, while the Eagles... Nick Foles, who, you know, continues to get the job done for the Eagles. The Eagles have a chance to win their first Super Bowl. They are 0-2 in Super Bowl games, and their last one being in 2004 when they lost 24-21 to to the New England Patriots. But I want to begin with the Eagles side and Nick Foles especially because he was remarkable against the Vikings defense. 26 of 33, 352 yards, three touchdowns. And we're talking about one of the best defenses in the NFL all year. And in the playoffs, Foles has a 74.2 pass completion percentage. And if you look at a few of the regular season games since replacing Carlson Wentz, he's 64% this season. Just on a lead comparison, Breeze finished number one at 72%, and Keenum was second at 67.2. So Foles would be at 12th at 64, but... Really, the question I have for you when it comes to Nick Foles, Jose, I, I know we have a lot of young QBs that we're talking about coming into the draft and a lot of good free agent QBs as well, like Kirk Cousins, Drew Brees, for example. But, Jose, in your mind, does Nick Foles deserve another starting chance to be a starting QB? Yeah, I mean, I think he definitely deserves a shot. Um, but I also thought this even before, you know, this this playoff run, that the Eagles are on right now. Nick Foles is still a serviceable quarterback, and I keep saying it. I felt like I've said it for the past couple of weeks, too, on the podcast. 
you know, he's a starting QB in a lot of other teams, a lot of other NFL teams. Um, this is a guy that when he got traded to St. Louis, you know, he was under Jeff Fisher. And, you know, we've discovered Jeff Fisher effect, right? Jeff Fisher doesn't do good with offensive quarterbacks. Um, he's more of a defensive-minded guy because now you see Jared Goff and how he's blooming under Sean McVay. You saw Case Keenum, who's flourishing under Pat Shermer, who is now the head coach of the Giants, but he was the offensive coordinator of the Vikings, and how Case Keenum's doing over there. All these guys were under Jeff Fisher, and their numbers plummeted significantly. Um, same thing for Nick Foles, right? He goes to the Rams, his numbers dip. All of a sudden, we look at him as a backup again. He gets his second chance with Philadelphia. However, they have Carson Wentz, so it forces Foles to sit on the sidelines. And and really, like I said, you know, Foles does deserve another chance. Now, does he get that chance if he doesn't go on this run? Probably not. This championship run here, this this playoff run that Nick Foles is doing here with the Eagles is really saving his career. And I can guarantee you'll see Foles on another team next year, at least in training camp, competing for a starting job. But he doesn't get that unless he's played the way he's played in these past couple of games. You know, I'm I'm going to say he doesn't deserve a starting chan uh, a, a starting QB spot just off the bat. But in my mind he certainly deserves a competition. Yeah, I, but I, this I is a guy that even word. when he was in Philadelphia a couple of years ago, I mean, he was leading the Eagles downfield in the division as well too. So this guy is not a stranger to success. We've seen him get it done when he was in Philadelphia last time as well. He wasn't a slouch. No, and I mean, he's certainly showing it these last two games in the playoffs. 49 for 66, 74.2 pass completion. And if you're wondering why the Eagles are doing so well in the playoffs, it's that's a lot because of Nick Foles. I didn't even think he had that great of a game offensively against the Falcons because you're putting up just mainly field goals. But overall, he's still getting the ball downfield. They're still getting first downs. They're still getting drives. And... Still five possessions where you're getting in field goal range at least, and you need to have those type of numbers, especially when it's going to be coming down towards the New England Patriots. Um, it's really tough to say that I think he's he's a number one QB. Nick Foles, I'm not going to go that route, but I'm going to say he deserves a shot. You have a lot of new faces that could be coming in uh, for the Browns, for uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, as in another example, or the Arizona Cardinals, and he deserves an opportunity where he's fighting with that young kid for the starting QB. And I think that's the role of Nick Foles right now. Uh, and he still might be one of the best backups in football. I, I think that could be an interesting uh, topic along the line because there are certainly QBs that don't stay healthy and you might want a top star QB that can come in all the time. Whence we would expect to be a healthy player, whereas Foles comes in and He's done great for the team. Uh, with the Eagles as well, they, they went 15-3 and three this season. Uh, they had the number one seed in the entire NFC. And they've been the underdogs consistently this playoffs. They were the underdogs against the Vikings. They were the underdogs against the Falcons. And even against the Patriots, they opened up the week as a six-and-a-half point underdog. Now they're at four-and-a-half point underdog, but... Should we be viewing this team, the Eagles, as such an underdog and far from the Patriots? You know, I, I think I think the answer to that is yes, and I, that might be so surprising to some people. Like you said, they were fifteen and three, and we did a podcast about maybe what halfway through the season where I even myself called them the best team in the NFC when they were eight and one because they were the best team in the NFC. But you also can't blame people 
when you watch Carson Wentz go down and say, uh-oh, where do the Eagles go from here? When the Eagles stumble into the playoffs without Carson Wentz, and they're still the first seed, they're still 15-3, and three, they still did phenomenal. Yes, they're still the best team in the NFC technically. But you also can't blame people when you say, okay, Nick Foles is stepping in for in a playoff game where he's cold off the bench. I can't take the Eagles in this game. And against the Vikings, again, same thing. You know, you're asking the Eagles to do it again. Can they do it again this time against one of the best defenses? I don't know. So, yeah, the Eagles are an underdog. And even though the Eagles, don't get me wrong, they deserve to be here. They got, you know, they got the number one seed. They ran through the playoffs. They played their game. They played phenomenal. They're still an underdog because they're facing the New England Patriots. So even though their numbers might not indicate that they're an underdog, you're still facing the evil empire. That's Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. So when, it all, when it's all said and done, they could have been undefeated, and they would still be the underdog against Tom Brady and Bill Belichick going into Sunday's game. Yeah, they're still an underdog. Uh, six and a half is high. Uh, I, I think that was a little bit too far, uh, especially when you look at the fact that I think in every one of the Patriots Super Bowl, it's been decided by six points or less. In, in every Super Bowl, they've won. Uh, so it's it's always very close games, and the two they lost against the Giants were still close games. Uh, so I don't agree with that mindset of let's make it a touchdown differential. Uh, when they play top defenses, we've seen them come back late against the Seahawks, late against the Jaguars, late against the Falcons, of course. Uh, so it's tough for me to say that they are a major underdog, but certainly so. Uh, underdog easily against the Patriots. Uh, they're not home anymore. And I think that could be a factor for Philadelphia as well. They lost one game at home all season. That was Week 17 against Dallas Cowboys. Sits nothing, and they had nothing to play for in that game. So they've been great at home. They've been stellar at home. But it's it's a different game when you're talking about the Super Bowl, when you're talking about versing Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Uh, of course, they're going to be underdogs in that situation. I don't think there's been a Super Bowl where the Patriots haven't been the favorite, especially of recently. When it comes to Tom Brady, Jose, are we finally done with having the conversation of Tom Brady not being the greatest quarterback of all time? No, and I think I think last year we got that answer. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. Um, he got his fifth championship last year. He did it in dramatic fashion, coming down from what? Was it 28-3? Is that the significant choke that the Falcons did? You can't have a performance like that and not be called the greatest of all time. Anything that they do now, him and Belichick together, is just adding on to their legacy. But to me, there's no debate. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. And if he wins this Sunday, it just further cements that fact. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's I think it's gotten silly that we still, if someone still can have that debate, it's, it's rather interesting if you can find statistics that don't prove Tom Brady is the greatest uh, in his entire career. Uh, looking at it earlier. In the playoffs, only three times has he been eliminated before the conference championship. That alone, to me, stands out. Forget just the five Super Bowls alone. And being in the Super Bowl now eight times, as seven have been decided. But you're constantly always getting to the conference championship. So you're doing it in the regular season phenomenally by getting home field advantage a bunch of the times, or if you're not the home team, you're at least a two-seed majority as well. 
and you're getting farther in the playoffs than any team. You're always in the conference championship where we talked about other great quarterbacks like an Aaron Rodgers or like a Ben Roethlisberger. Like, they're not getting there uh, all the time. They're not there every single year. But who is? Tom Brady. And he's the only quarterback that's consistently done that. So I, stats alone prove it in my mind for Tom Brady. The playoffs, 100%. And I think it should be already done with and decided. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. No one in my mind is going to be able to catch him. And if he wins this Super Bowl, he still could be playing a couple more years down the line. And who knows at that point how many more Super Bowls he could win. Um, obviously, the big question, no. Who do you have winning the Super Bowl on Sunday? Well, it's going to be an interesting matchup, first of all. And I want to say that um, I'm really looking forward to it. Patriots-Eagles, it's going to be a good one. At first, it may not have been the matchup that everybody wanted to see. I know everybody wants to see the Vikings make it. They want to see the team play in their own home stadium. But at the end of the day, we're getting two number one seeds, right? We're getting the best teams, record-wise and stat-wise. We're getting the two best teams on each side facing off against each other. I think this is going to be a lot closer than we think. Like you said, they're what? They're plus six underdog, you said, uh, the Eagles coming into this one? Plus four. Four and a half. Plus four and a half, yes. I don't think... I think this game's going to be a lot closer than people think. I think a lot of people look at the Patriots and they say, damn, the Patriots are back in it. Give them the ring already. But <clears throat> when you look at the Eagles, with Carson Wentz or no Carson Wentz, this is still a phenomenal team defensively on the defensive side of the ball. And they've proved that, right? They shut down one of the hottest offenses in the Minnesota Vikings. They made Matt Ryan look foolish out there on the field, even with Julio Jones healthy and available, right? So <clears throat> this Eagles defense deserves a lot of credit as well going forward. To me, the biggest key in this one is two things. One, for the Eagles, that defensive line, can a defensive line get to Tom Brady? Like you said, Tom Brady's been to eight Super Bowls. Seven of them have been decided. He's won five of them. And the two that he's lost, yeah, the two to the New York Giants. Sorry, I had to slide that in there somewhere. <laughs> he's lost two to the New York Giants. And the reasons why he lost to the Giants is not because of these phenomenal plays that Eli Manning makes. I know it's a lot of people call them luck. But it's also how the defense approaches Tom Brady. In those games... You can see the defensive line, the front four guys, the front three, whatever style of defense they play. Those guys were getting to Tom Brady. Justin Tuck was getting to Tom Brady. Osun Yuminura was getting to Tom Brady. When Strahan was there, he was getting to Tom Brady. Tom Brady is a guy that loves to use all of his offensive weapons. For, you know, Brandon Cooks was shut down last week, and he made Danny, Danny Amendola look like Randy Moss, right? Tom Brady loves to use whatever's open. So all the Eagles are going to need all their defensive backs locked down on these receivers because you cannot give Tom Brady any room, which means it's up to the defensive line to get to Tom Brady and not use as many blitz to try and take down Tom and keep him in the pocket. Second thing here is on the Eagles' side of the ball as well. Nick Foles is going to be a huge key part of this. And this is one of the reasons why I'm going to say I'm, I'm taking the Patriots to win the Super Bowl. And the reason why mainly is because Nick Foles, in week, the first game against Atlanta, I still say Atlanta beat themselves. I think the Falcons could have won that game. But you also have to tip your cap to the Eagles' defense. That was more of a defensive game um, that the Eagles won as opposed to Nick Foles doing it on the offense. I know he still had good completion ratings, but the defense was a big reason why they beat the Falcons. Secondly, against the Vikings, right? You give Nick Foles all the credit. He did phenomenal. They put up 30-plus points on the board. And basically, Doug Peterson looked at Nick Foles and said, Nick, I need you to have the game of your life to get us to the Super Bowl, right? Nick Foles do that, did that. 
but can Doug Peterson really look at Nick Foles again and say, Nick, I need you to have the game of your life again against one of the best quarterbacks of all time, against one of the best coaches of all time, and I need you to win a Super Bowl? I think it's, I think that's going to be very difficult to ask Nick Foles to do it again um, in a pressure, pressure scenario like this one where, like you said, it's basically a road game, even though the Eagles are technically home, I believe, or I believe the, the Patriots are home. Either way, they're not home. Um, and I think it's going to be very difficult to ask Nick Foles to do that again against not one of the best defenses. You know, the Patriots don't have a great defense, but they have a pretty good one. Um, so you're asking Nick Foles to go up against a guy who's been here eight times. Um, and to me, I'll always roll with the experience. Most of the time, I'll choose the underdog. But in this scenario, I don't bet against Belichick or Brady. Again, especially against a quarterback that's really fighting for his career at this point. I'm going to take the Patriots. I do think it's going to be closer than people think. I have it at 24-20. I think that's a reasonable score around that range. I think it's going to be decided by a field goal or less. Possibly a safety, throwing that in there. But again, I think it's going to be pretty close. Um, but still give me the Patriots over the Eagles. So, I, I love the coaching matchup because Doug Peterson, he has made some great adjustments throughout the playoffs. We saw him play very conservative against the Falcons, those short passes, trying to get the yards, and more of a zone defense. And then what does he do against the Vikings? The exact opposite. We're seeing Nick Foles throw bomb passes. We're seeing a flea flicker. We're seeing all different things at that moment. And I, I think that's an impressive thing that Doug Peterson has, obviously much different than Chip Kelly. And it does remind me of a lot like a Bill Belichick where you're constantly making adjustments on the team that you're facing. But nobody does it like Bill Belichick. And at the end of the day, I'm always going to take the better coach. And that's a key factor on when I took the Patriots over the Falcons. It is coaching at the end of the day. And for me, that's a big reason why I'm going with the Patriots. Tom Brady, obviously, is like you said, it's it's Nick Foles versus Tom Brady. It's so hard to give any reason to pick against Tom Brady. And this is an Eagles team that, yes, their defense has been phenomenal, but the Falcons and Matt Ryan, their offense was not the same as it was last year. And I agree with you. The Falcons really cost themselves that football game against the Eagles. And Case Keenum... I, Again, I do believe he deserves a shot to be the starting QB next season for the Vikings. But Ryan and Keenum are not Tom Brady. And in the big moments, the Patriots always find a way to win those games. It's a big reason why I'm going with the Patriots. I have it not as close, 23-16. I think it's going to be more of a two-possession game by the Patriots, which is surprising to say. But at the end of the day, I'm going with the fact that this is also more of a road game for the Eagles because they're going to Minnesota, the team they just knocked out in the conference championship. There's going to be plenty of Viking fans at that game, and there's going to be plenty of NFL fans at that game. But they're not going to be rooting for the Vi- They're not going to be rooting for the team that just knocked out the Vikings. They'll take their chances and root for the Patriots, of course. So I, I think this is going to be a more of a favorable crowd for the Patriots than they'll see in the past few Super Bowls, where normally the Patriots, the evil empire, or is that just the Yankees? Um, they're going to get booed a lot more. They're, they're going to get a lot more noise. They're going to be more of the hated team going in. But 
Yeah, I think it's going to be the opposite when it comes to this Super Bowl, and I think that does play a factor to it as well. And obviously, my MVP is going to be Tom Brady, but one of the players I'm looking for, looking at, and there's always that one guy. And this is uh, I'll take it back to you, Jose, in a moment to, to ask you the question as well. But it always seems that the Patriots have that one guy that just breaks out and, and does a phenomenal job. Last year. James White against the Falcons. Last week, you said it. Danny Amendola, two touchdowns in the game, seven catches. Yeah, Coates had 100 yards, but it's that extra guy. And for me, it's Deion Lewis. He had seven catches last week against the Jaguars, only 32 yards. He was getting nothing per play. And I don't think that's going to happen again because the Jaguars' defense is better than the Eagles' defense. And the week before... He had a ton of targets and a, a ton of receptions against the Titans. And we saw a, a better game offensively by the Patriots overall, mainly because, you know, he got 50 more yards in the game for Deion Lewis. So I think that's something that's going to be a huge factor for me. Usually in these type of big playoff games, we're seeing Tom Brady kick it off to his running backs a lot of the time. Deion Lewis has been that guy in lately in these playoffs to get those receptions. I know you can't forget about James White and what he did in the Super Bowl last year, but for me, for the Patriots, the guy I'm looking for, uh, out for the most and looking to see dominate the football game is Deion Lewis by far because he also has that special team's ability when it comes to kickoffs. But, Jose, who's your guy on the Patriots as well uh, that really is that guy to look out for? Well, it's going to be the guy I mentioned before, Danny Amendola. I mean, this guy... You know, he flies under the radar. He's not a top wide receiver on really on any team, right? But it's the fact that Tom Brady knows where to find him. He knows that, that he's going to get open at some point. You know that most teams are looking at covering Brandon Cooks first, Rob Gronkowski second, and anybody else after that. So this guy really does fly under the radar in terms of Tom Brady's targets because you forget that he's there sometimes. And I think it's that third wide receiver, that third or fourth one, even like a couple of years ago, in that playoff game against the Steelers where Chris Hogan came out of nowhere, right? It's always that extra guy that Tom Brady finds that really hurts the other team. To me, Damian Dole is going to be that guy again, and it's going to hurt the Eagles badly. Uh, a lot of it could come down to also Drant playing or not. Uh, key factor, he was healthy against the Seahawks. They beat the Seahawks. He had a touchdown, 80 yards in the game. Was not healthy against the New York Giants. Probably a huge factor on why the Patriots weren't able to beat the Giants as well. I'm certainly going to enjoy the Super Bowl. Both of us have the Patriots winning the, the Super Bowl. A uh, little bit of difference in the score, but nonetheless a one-possession football game at the end for both of us. And in my mind, it's going to be a great uh, great Super Bowl, and Tom Brady and the Patriots taking home their sixth Super Bowl reign. And to, again, greatest coach, greatest quarterback of all time. But want to get into a little bit of baseball, and mainly because of the Milwaukee Brewers. They had a very active earlier in the week. Marlins making another trade, traded Christian Yelich away to the Milwaukee Brewers for Luis Brinson, as well Monte Harrison, Eisen Diaz, and Jordan Yamoto. And I was like, your thoughts on the Brewers getting Christian Yelich? Well, it's funny because the hot stove has been so cold for a while now. 
Um, so the Brewers to make a couple moves here, as we're going to get to the second move that they made in a little bit, um, it just kind of reignite the fire, right? Everybody's all chatting up about, against like, uh, baseball again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, it's a great move. I mean, anytime you get a chance to get a guy like Christian Yelich, you go for it, right? It's a talented outfielder under a team-friendly contract. He's not going to break the bank. He fits right in with the group of guys that they already have. He's a great defensive center fielder or outfielder, wherever you want to put him. He hasn't quite broken in with his bat yet, I was so to speak. I think Yelich still has a lot more potential to do with his bat that we didn't exactly see when he was on the Marlins. But I think this is a good fit for him. It's a team that's going to be in contention after the great year that they had last year. And I like it for the Brewers. You know, this is a team that was very underrated last year, all year long. You remember when you were on my radio show, it felt like a topic every week was, hey, are the Brewers pretenders or contenders? And they proved that they could swing it with the best of them, right? I mean, the Brewers were with this team that was just clobbering home runs left and right. They missed the wild card game by just a couple of games. It would have been nice to see them make it. You know, they put full effort all the way to the end. And I don't think they're going away either. I think the Brewers are a team that knows that they have a window right now where they have good young players. So why not go for it? And I love the aggression by their GM here to say, hey, we had a great year last year. We're ahead of schedule. Let's keep it going and bring in a guy of a caliber like Christian Yelich, which brings them to the next level. And if not, at least puts them in contention for the NL Central next year. I think it's a great move. And not only do they add Christian Yelich, and Yelich, of course, 18 home runs, 100 runs scored, even 16 stolen bases with a 282 batting average. He's, like you said, really young, 20 sits on a extremely team-friendly contract. But they go out and sign Lorenzo Cain for a five-year, $80 million deal. And I want to go back to your point on they finished with 86 wins last season. Uh, The Rockies beat them out with 87 to make the second wild card spot. So they were just out of it and six games out of the division. Are these two moves enough to get the Brewers towards the playoffs? I think it's enough to put them in contention for possibly a wild card spot. I still think the Cubs pretty much had a down year last year. I think the Cubs are going to be a team that can easily win 100-plus games next year again, um, which might create a little bit of a difference between the two. But if I look at the Brewers, they're definitely wild-card contenders. But these moves, to me, it's not enough, and we'll get into that in a second because I believe we are going to talk about the crowded outfield. But all of a sudden, with Yelich and Lorenzo Cain, and I love the move for Lorenzo Cain as well too, it gives them one of the best defensive outfields already with Yelich and Cain. And then you add whoever else they want to throw in that outfield. This team is setting them up for success defensively. And again, Kane can swing it, and so could Yelich. You know, Kane's no, you know, he's no slouch with the bat either. The Brewers made themselves a lot better um, just by bringing in these two guys, plus the young core that they already have of guys like Travis Shaw, Jonathan VR is still there. Um, there's just a lot of potential and upside for this Brewers team that's already so young that you know they had that little taste of you know we just missed the playoffs just by that much. If you don't think they're going to come out this year and be hungry to try and do it again. I think you're crazy. And then you add two guys, one in a veteran leadership role of, of Lorenzo Cain, who's been on a small market young team and won the World Series. If you don't think that's a great leadership guy to bring in here to try and motivate these young guys, I think you're crazy as well, too. I definitely think that these moves are good to position themselves for a playoff spot. I don't think they're quite there yet um, because I do think they need more. But I, I believe we will get to that in a second. It, it really uh, is interesting because Lorenzo Cain signs – for five years, eighty million on an average of uh, sixteen million a year, if my math is right. Uh, but 
going a little past that, you have Yelich, who extremely team friendly contract, only owed like forty three million over the next few years, and he still has at the end of it all a fifteen million dollar club option. So it just shows how much of a team friendly contract Yelich has, and it's interesting how many players the Brewers had to give up in this trade. And I, I, again, I love this move by the Brewers. They had two top outfielders to their team. You said it as well. Two extremely good defensive outfielders in a National League Central that's extremely offensive. Yeah, Cincinnati is known for their offense. The Cubs, I mean, that's self-explanatory. And you have other teams like Pittsburgh falling out. The Cardinals are doing extremely well. That you need these extra offensive pieces, and you're trying to make a push back to the playoffs. You felt that you were leading the division all season long. Injuries kind of slowed you down a little bit. You have two very healthy outfielders now that are going to be consistently everyday starters for you. I love the moves for the Brewers, but it's interesting how much it costs when you're talking about a team-friendly contract like the Marlins received. And going on the Marlins side for a moment, they get Luis Princeton, who was the number one prospect for the Brewers. Monte Harrison is now the Marlins' number two prospect in their organization. And Aizen Diaz is their number nine. So this is a huge haul for the Marlins who are in that rebuild stage. And out of all the trades that the Marlins have done, this clearly is their biggest blockbuster trade receiving back. Uh, So if you're a Marlins fan, I know it's obviously been extremely tough watching everything go down and literally blown up. And good for you if you're still a Marlins fan after all this. But this has to be like the one big positive for the Miami Marlins right now. Your take on it, Jose. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is why it took so long for them to trade Christian Yelich, right? When they were doing their fire sale. I mean, guys were getting traded left and right. Even the athletic trainer and the water boy were on their way out to Cincinnati. <laughs> That's how fast they were moving people. I mean, but when it came to Christian Yelich, and, and this is why I don't fully blame the Marlins or whatever, they took their time with this. They knew that, hey, okay, Yelich, and really, and I'll throw Rio Muto in there as well, too. These are two guys that are under team-friendly contracts. They're young, and they're studded players, right? Riamuto is easily one of the top catchers already in MLB, and so is Christian Yelich in terms of young outfielders in terms of their age, right? So the Marlins are not dumb, and they know that if we're going to move Yelich and Riamuto, we're going to get our money's worth back for them in terms of prospects, right? They couldn't get a lot back for Stan because they needed the Yankees to take a bulk of that money, right? Even though they gave them $20 million, which to me is in a weird way. D. Gordon, too. His contract wasn't the most expensive, but it also wasn't that team-friendly either. So they weren't able to get a ton back for him. Same thing for Osuna. But because Yelich is so team-friendly, and Riomuto as well, and I believe you will see Riomuto traded at some point, those are the two guys that you really need to strike gold with, so to speak. And they did a good job by trading uh, Yelich and getting what they got back in return. Yeah, this is, this is a huge haul for the Marlins. They have really... Obviously, when you trade guys like D. Gordon, Marcelo Zuna, Christian Yelich, and Gentile Stanton, you're going to revamp your entire prospects. And it has constantly changed. That top 30 prospect list seems to change every single trade they made, especially in that top five. The one through four are all part of those trades, two of them being one and two now 
of the yellow trade. Giancarlo Stanton trade included Jorge Guzman, who's sitting at number four. Uh, um, Ozuna's trade, you have number three from the, uh, the Cardinals. So a lot of different moves getting the Marlins to... Obviously, they got a long way to go still, but they're slowly trying to build a top prospect team that's going to be a non-expensive team for them for years to come. So it's one step at a time. It's going to be a long... A long wait for Marlins fans, of course, but this is this is a type of trade you want to see when you get three top ten prospects in your organization for Christian Yelich and still a pitcher that did extremely well in Class A. You like where it's going. For the Brewers, Jose, one last point with it. It's a crowded outfield, and that seems like something that we talked about a lot in New York because you have the New York Mets and the New York Yankees who have a ton of outfield, but... That's the same case with the Brewers, especially with four big names. Ryan Braun, Kean Broxton, and now Lorenzo Cain, Christian Yelich, and Santana also for the Brewers. So do the Brewers, should they be looking to trade one of their outfielders before the season start, or would it be better to go in with five? No, I mean, you definitely should go into the season with five outfielders. The problem, the real question is the caliber of your five outfielders. When teams build their teams... Um, you know, they usually carry five outfielders, but it's usually three starting outfielders and you have two backup ones that are going to play sparingly. Um, obviously Lorenzo Cain and Christian Yelich are going to play every day, right? So that's two spots right there. Then you're talking about three starters for one spot in Ryan Braun, um, Santana, as well as Keon Broxton. Now, if I'm the Brewers, I truly think it's just time to part ways with Ryan Braun. So either a buyout of Ryan Braun or trading him and eating some of the cash in that deal. You're not going to get a lot back for Ryan Braun, but I really think it's just time to cut the ties with Ryan Braun. He wasn't even part, part really big part of a picture last year. This team is moving forward. He, you know, he comes from a tainted background in terms of the Brewers' history. Just let it go, start fresh, buy out Ryan Braun, or trade him and start fresh and just get it off your hands. Right? You know, you're not going to get enough for him, so just get the deal done and ready. So now you're looking at two guys for one spot, in my opinion, with Broxton or Santana. Now. And, and remember, the Brewers still have other outfielders as well, too, that could hit the ball. I mean, we saw platoons last year like crazy, and it worked out just fine for them. Um, but what the Brewers do need to do, and this is when you ask the question of, is it enough to get them into the playoffs? This is where they can get themselves into the playoffs. Because if you look at the Brewers last year, fantastic young team. They were hitting home runs like crazy. They were swinging the bat. It was fun to watch. But the area of weakness was their pitching. And I'm not saying their pitching stinked. But it also wasn't up to par with some of these other teams that they were competing for for the wild card spot. And I truly believe if the if the if the Brewers, my bad, if the Brewers just would have had some consistent starting pitching, they probably wouldn't have made the playoffs instead of the Colorado Rockies. So what I want to see the Brewers do is trade either Santana or Broxton for a pitcher or two that's going to help them in the middle rotation, or you go and you trade them for an ace. Now, if I'm the Brewers. I try and do everything I can to keep Broxton, because I think an outfield of Broxton, Kane, and Yelich is fantastic and phenomenal. But if you really want to get that ace, or if you really want to get you know a couple pitchers back, Broxton might have to be the one that you might have to let go. And although it would suck to let go of him, at least you have the other two guys that you just recently brought in to help fill that void. But I think the Brewers definitely need some pitching if they want to put themselves in that conversation of being true playoff contenders trading one of their outfielders does that i mean this really i'm not going to say mets because that'd be insulting on the brewers outfield uh, yeah how dare you yeah it, it is more 
a Yankee like, but just go on a few numbers. Uh, Bratston, 143 games, 20 home runs, 21 stolen bases, and he batted 220. He really, he struggled with the batting average. Santana, on the other hand, 30 home runs, 278 batting average, 15 stolen bases. Ryan Braun only played 104 games last season. He had 17 home runs, which puts you, you know, he had more home runs than Lorenzo Cain, one less than Yelich, and he played 50 less games than the two of those outfielders. So there's a lot of power if you go Ryan Braun style, if he stays healthy, and he's owed, like you said, more money than Santana. Brodston is older than Santana and Yelich, so it's possibly easier to trade a Brodston on a team that's more looking to take a chance on him. Uh, but you have an easy opportunity to get some starting pitching, just like you said. And if you're going to go out and you're going to sign Lorenzo Cain to an $80 million deal, and you're going to trade for Christian Yelich, then you ha- and we already heard in reports that you Darvish they were thinking about for a little while. So they definitely know that starting pitching is where they want to go, but you have three outfielders now. And in a scenario where Lorenzo Cain was probably a cheaper option than a U Darvish, you could probably trade Keon Brodston or Ryan Braun, depending on where you're going with it, and get some starting pitching and get some real help and really make yourself a true contender for the NL Central, not just a wild card spot at that point. So I don't think the Brewers are done it, and I don't, and I hope the Brewers are not done because there should still be another move to go to add a starting pitcher at that point because this team looks great offensively, uh, but they just need one extra pitcher or two, and they can easily get it with that outfield they have. Also in the MLB, uh, Chief Wahoo of the Cleveland Indians will no longer be the logo of the team beginning in 2019. And this is, feels like the right time. It's always been a complaint for a while now. The MLB finally making the change. The Indians finally making the change. So there will be no more Chief Wahoo logos on the uniforms starting in 2019. Uh, Jose, is it enough or should the Indians be looking to change their name as well from the Cleveland Indians so what should uh, be going on right about now as well well you said it's you know it's about time that they actually took action on this I mean a lot of people have been complaining about it for a while it is offensive you know whether you agree or not it is offensive to the Native American um, people and their tribes and stuff like that and I think it's good that finally they're getting rid of this off the uniform my problem with this is that, like you said, is it enough? I don't think it is enough because we're still talking about Chief Wahoo being on novelty items. So we're talking about bobbleheads, shot glasses, you know, souvenir cups. Like, his image is still going to appear in a lot of other places. And it just it feels like they're trying to throw a Band-Aid over a giant open wound um, just by taking him off the uniform. Don't get me wrong. It's a good and about time, you know, first step. That should have happened a couple of years ago. But it's a good first step in the right direction in terms of baseball you know, trying to do this and do right by the Native American people. In terms of what else needs to be done, you know, honestly, we should stop playing games and, and stop trying to be mind readers. I think we need to get some representatives, in, you know, in a room, sit down with teams, sit down with organizations like this who have this background of maybe of having offensive names and ask them, hey, you know, what do you guys think of the name Cleveland Indians? Is the team being called Indians offensive to, you know, offensive to you guys? And, you know, let's act like a couple of grownups. Let's hash this out. And if they do find it offensive, then changes need to be made. But the only way you're going to find that out is if you actually ask these people 
and, you know, do the right thing and do right by them. But again, you got to have the conversation and not just assume saying, hey, well, we think the name is okay. It's just the image that sucks. You know, really, it, it needs to be a group effort and find out, is it the image? Is it the name? What else about this is offensive? That way we're not offending other people as well. Yeah, I, you know, this This is a long time coming, um, and, and it should not be the end. And, and when I say that, I mean, if the name goes eventually, the, the word Indians go. And, and there shouldn't be an issue with that. You know, Cleveland has been doing very well when it comes to their sports teams. And, and to tell me that your fan base is going to change because of your team name changing, I think that's a little silly. We saw in the NBA a couple of years back, well, two of those teams changed their names recently. There's constantly logo changes. There's constantly jersey changes. And now we're finally having one that no one's going to say the words, well, they're doing it just for sales. No, they're doing it so that because it's the right thing to do. And I think if you're going to stand by that, and if you're going to go that route of saying this is the right thing to do, and we're standing up by our decision of this being the right way, to me, don't go halfway. If the word Indians is the word that's also offensive, and if we're going to be using the word Indians and we're going to be using the word tribe to, uh, to talk about the Cleveland Indians throughout the season, maybe we need a different word from that. And that doesn't just go from there, because of course... I'm also thinking about the NFL when it comes to the Washington Redskins and their logo that's been going on for years on end, much more than the MLB because, again, the NFL is a bigger sport and more national. So, of course, and it doesn't even help that they have the Washington Redskins in the nation's capital as a bonus for it all. But, you know... There, there comes a point where it's the right thing to do and then continue on from that. So I completely agree with you where if the name change needs to be made, which I certainly could see it happening, go that route as well. Uh, but don't just exit out the logo and think it's all done from there because there are still issues when it comes to this. Uh, with the word Indians or with the word Redskins. Uh, the Braves, I think, are a little bit different. They've been sticking with an ats, and that's been their part, but you never know with that. So, and it's it's going to be an interesting way on what happens if this will be just the first stepping stone when it comes towards the Cleveland Indians, the Washington Redskins, maybe the Chicago Blackhawks as well. So, uh, but a good on the Cleveland Indians, for eliminating Chief Wahoo. Of course, that will begin in 2019. This will be the last season, but majority of the time you would expect them to not have the logo on anyways. Let's jump into the NBA for a little bit. Uh, the Los Angeles Clippers, huge trade last night. Blake Griffin going to the Detroit Pistons for Tobias Harris, Avery Bradley, a backup center in Bobin. Marjolit, a 2018 protected first round pick and a 2019 second round pick. And what's really strange about this trade is just in this offseason, Blake Griffin signs a five-year, $171 million contract with the Clippers. And then before the season ends, he's already traded to the Detroit Pistons. So, Jose, let's start with the Clippers. Was this a good trade in your mind for the Clippers? And what should be next for the Clippers? 
Yeah, like you said, it was a little bit mind-boggling, right? Because he signs this extension, and we haven't even completed a year of it yet, right? He's still in the first year of the deal, and he gets flipped over to Detroit. I mean, listen, this is something that probably should have happened during the offseason. You can argue that they probably shouldn't have even signed Blake Griffin, because once Chris Paul left, you know, I, I was one of those people that thought the Clippers should have just blown this up and restart again, right? They've been trying to make the playoffs for constant years. They brought in Chris Paul to team up with Blake Griffin, and nothing ever came of it. Why? It was three or four straight years of the Clippers still falling flat on their faces in the first round of the playoffs. They just weren't getting it done. Now, I understand they were trying to save it a little bit and bring in, uh, you know, bring back Blake Griffin, try and build around him, but it's just not working. The Clippers aren't the same like they used to be. So I think it's a good idea to try, you know, start salvaging their season and start trading away a couple of players. I don't agree with signing Blake Griffin to this monster contract and then trading him away because what does that tell your fan base what that we made a mistake with signing him or it's just we don't see ourselves going anywhere for the next five years that we need to deal Blake Griffin um it's a mix it's a mixed message that you send to the fan base is what I have a problem with but I don't have a problem with them trading away pieces because you're going to get stuff back for him right what's next for the Clippers one I think they should be they should trade DeAndre Jordan um you're not going to get a ton load back for him but you're still going to get some players back for him and the Clippers need to look into trading Lou Williams as well, too. Especially while Lou Williams is hot right now, you need to go and trade him. You can get a team to overpay for him uh, for his services, um, for his six-man services. Even though he's playing like a regular starter right now, he's a six-man at best, really. Once he comes back down to earth a little bit, the Clippers should take full-on advantage and trade Lou Williams as well with DeAndre Jordan. Um, and again, going back to that point, is it a good trade for the Clippers? Yes and no. Why? Because you're not going to go anywhere. And you need to start salvaging the season, but it's also a bad trade because you just told your fan base we're probably not going to contend for the next three or four years. I mean, the Clippers, I'm not going to say could have a fast rate of going, but you know, I, I love this trade by the Clippers. If you're going to try and trade off your team and try and trade off pieces, like you traded away Chris Paul and you don't know about DeAndre Jordan and there's been constantly chatter about trying to trade Lou Williams away and you deal Blake Griffin and yes he's your star player and it's extremely hard and near impossible to replace a player of Griffin's caliber but you trade away a huge contract and you get a first round pit this year and not only that you add Avery Bradley who he's been involved in a lot of trade rumors so now you have Lou Williams and Avery Bradley, who are going to be free agents, I believe, at the end of the year, who are both worth a possible first-round pick, where you could package them both off for possible players and future pits as well. You still have the star center in DeAndre Jordan that you could trade away. So there's there's a lot that the Clippers can do right about now, but this cannot be the only move. They, they have to stay active towards the trade deadline and really trade away a few of these players because you can't go into the free agency where you've kept Avery Bradley, where you've kept Lou Williams. It's the perfect time. I don't want to say the words fire sale, but it's about that moment where you can really start over and be in a great spot for next year. And I mean, I'll throw the Cavs out there. They hold the Brooklyn Nets pick. Try and get that from them. When all of a sudden you can... You hold Avery Bradley, Lou Williams, DeAndre Jordan. You can work some ways to try and get that pick and especially take on a couple bad contracts when you traded away Blake Griffin. So 
there's a lot you can rebuild on with the Clippers. You can rebuild with young players, and you can get a lot for these type of players that you have on your team. So I'm, I'm expecting the Clippers to stay really active. And I like the Tobias Harris one. I think it's a little bit underrated as well. Uh, for the Pistons, though, they get Blake Griffin. Yes, an extremely expensive contract, but the Pistons are 1-9 in the last 10 games. They've lost 8 in a row. Jose, does this seem like it was a really rushed move by the Pistons or a good move? Uh, I think it was a rushed move um, only because of the amount that they gave up, right? Tobias Harris is no slouch, like you said. They give that up. They give up Avery Bradley, who's going to be a free agent, but still, he's a good three-point specialist. And they give up those two those two draft picks as well, too, a first round and a second round. Um, it's a rush move, but I also feel like it was a little bit needed, right? You said it. They lost about eight games in a row. This team needed some life. This team needed a change. And I do think that Blake Griffin, although it's an expensive contract and it was a lot to get him, the minute Blake Griffin walks through the door, I think the culture changes. Now you're talking about a team that has Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond. Good luck standing up to that front court because I'm not going to go in there and rebound with those two. But it, it, it's true. I mean, I think I, even though I think it's a rush deal, right, and they probably could have held out and probably could have gotten him for cheaper as they got closer to the deadline or even a cheaper player, as they got closer to the deadline, I do think that it was a much-needed culture change for Detroit in that locker room. Because Blake Griffin is a leader. I know a lot of people like to rag on him because he does get hurt a lot and he's not always there. But players respond to Blake Griffin as a leader in this locker room. And I think him coming into this locker room of Detroit could get things back on track for Detroit. I think it's a nice, um, it's a nice change for them in terms of the style of play, maybe. Yeah, it does seem like it was rushed, but... I think it all depends on if the Pistons make the playoffs, and if and I they, think and I think they will. They have a great chance to. Yeah, they're they're right now they're sitting at two and a half games out of the eighth seed, but that can certainly change right about now. And keep in mind, in these eight games, they've had to first the Cleveland Cavaliers twice in that span. They haven't had the easiest uh, of schedules of late, so it, it doesn't help you. Like. Uh, they're going back-to-back games with the Cavs. They're playing the Cavs tonight after losing to the Cavs on Sunday. They had to play. It doesn't help that you played four straight home games, but in that you you took on the Oklahoma City Thunder, the uh, Washington Wizards, Toronto Raptors. So you've played some really tough teams in this span. And But getting back to the basics, if you get Blake Griffin, you get one of the top forwards in the NBA. You mix that with Drummond. You have, like you said, one of the top two big men to have on a team. And it kind of resembles a lot, in my mind, the Clippers with DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin. And if that's the route that the Pistons want to go, that's fine. That's a good playoff style. I don't know how far in the playoffs you can get with that team, but you need results. When, when you trade and get a star player, you need positive results, and the first step will have to be winning and getting to the playoffs. So if they're able to do that, I'll look at it and say, you know, it's a good move. If they're not able to do that, then obviously this trade was bad. It's not worth the money, and it could be a lot of problems for the Pistons in the future. Uh, interesting enough, uh, the Pelicans and the the Orleans Pelicans and the Washington Wizards have a few things in common. They're both sit seeds right now. They're both twenty seven and twenty two, and they're both going to be without a star player on their team. John Wall 
for the Wizards could miss about two months because of a knee injury, whereas DeMarcus Cousins, he's out the rest of the season with a torn left Achilles. So, obviously, I know you want to talk a little bit about both of the players and the injuries, but Jose, let's start with, do either the Wizards or the Pelicans have a chance of making the playoffs without Wall and Cousins, or which team has a better chance of keeping their playoff hopes alive? I think the team that has a better chance of keeping their playoff hopes alive is probably the Washington Wizards. Um, They missed John Wall a little bit earlier in the season, too, and you saw Bradley Beal was able to step up just a little bit. Um, I I still think the Wizards need John Wall to be, you know, to really be successful, but I think the Wizards can survive a little bit um, without John Wall. Two months is a long time, though. I'm not saying it's a great chance, but I think they have a better chance than they do uh, than the Pelicans have. Um, Again, they still have Bradley Beal as a top talent. You know, Kelly Oubre can step it up if they need to, but they're going to need those other side pieces on that team to really step their game up in order to help the Wizards survive without John Wall, especially when we're in January. It's crunch time. This is not the couple of months that you want to be missing because if you're talking about two months, you're possibly talking about April, and by that time it might be too late for the Wizards to try and do anything. But if anybody can hang on, if you're going to ask me who's going to hang on between the Wizards and Pelicans, I say it's going to be the Wizards. Now, moving on to the Pelicans, the reason why I think it's so important that the Marcus Cousins need to be there, it's because for their playoff chances as well, too, once they're in the playoffs. I don't know if you noticed this, but when the Warriors lost to the Rockets, a big reason because of that is because the Rockets have such a bigger lineup. Um, the Warriors are a small team. When Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, and um, I know I'm missing somebody, but when those five guys are on the court, it's a small lineup. It really is. So your best chances of beating Golden State is when you're a bigger physical team. Now tell me, Nick, who has one of the, be- the tallest, toughest front courts in the NBA in the West? Probably the Pelicans. Why? Because you had DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis, two seven-foot monsters crashing down on the boards on you, grabbing rebounds and putting the ball in the hoop. You take one of those guys out now, it's a significant difference now for the Pelicans. And, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but the Cousins was having a monster year in his free agent year. I mean, you're going to take away all that offense now. He was averaging a double-double on a nightly basis. I mean, you take that away now, that puts a lot of pressure on Anthony Davis, who, although he can get the job done, it still was a lot better when him and DeMarcus Cousins were together. So I think Cousins means more to the Pelicans' overall playoff chances than Wall does to the Wizards trying to get in. Yeah, and for me, I also, I mean, I do factor East and West. And in the Eastern Conference, when you look at the standings, uh, Detroit is 22 and 26. They're currently sitting out on the playoffs. In, In the West, it's 25 and 24 with the Clippers. So uh, do I think both teams have a shot at making the playoffs? Yes, just because there's a lot of distance between that 10th seeded team and you have the fact that the Clippers are selling out. So, And you expect the same to happen pretty much in the Eastern Conference somewhere. One of those teams is just going to drop off and completely sell. Uh, but I give it to the uh, the Wizards have a better chance. They're in a weaker conference. They're they're in a weaker division, and I think you can pick off a few extra games with versing those type of teams. And you're going to have to win those games. And you're going like this. You said you need everyone to step up when your star player is gone, and it it's going to be nearly impossible to replace. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins. I know Anthony Davis is one of the best players in the NBA, 
and and that I don't take away from him, but you're talking about a guy that just dominated every single game, and he was having some triple doubles throughout the season as well. I'm, this is cousin stats for the season right now. He's averaging he averaged 25 points per game. Mits that with nearly 13 rebounds a game and five assists. I mean, what big man is doing that on a consistent basis? A double-double, 13 rebounds, and he's also giving out five assists per game. That, that's too much to make up, and we saw that really early on. They lost to the Clippers in the first game without DeMarcus Cousins. I think that's going to be continuing on, and that was the case with the, the Pelicans when they didn't have DeMarcus Cousins. You saw the difference in the team last season uh, with Anthony Davis. They, they just have one player. With DeMarcus Cousins, they had two stars. They had a lot more moving uh, the ball around. They had the open threes at times because people really had to put guys in the paint against Cousins and Anthony Davis. I, I think that's just too much to bounce back from, and I give the Wizards a better chance of keeping their playoff hopes alive than the Pelicans. Speaking about another Eastern Conference team, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers truly seem to be a mess almost all the time when we talk about them. Uh, there's a lot of team issues that are blaming Kevin Love. Uh, yes, they've won two games in a row, but they've lost six out of their last seven. And there's rumors of Dan Gilbert looking to sell the team. Uh, always, And then you were talking about, well, maybe they should add players at the trade deadline. But in doing so... The Cavs don't know if LeBron James is going to even stay after this season, so it's tough to put a team together for a one-year part and really mess up your future. So, Jose, if you're the Cavs, what should the plan be as we head towards the trade deadline? Well, I mean, it's so bizarre, right? And first things first, like you said, it seems like the Cavaliers are always a mess, and we always say, oh, we're not worried about them. But for the first time in a while, Nick, I can actually say I am worried about the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't know what's going on over there. And it's, it's kind of startling. You know, everybody's blaming Kevin Love. You know, no one knows where Derrick Rose was for a while. I mean, it's it's a giant mess on your hands here. And it's for the first time in a while, you kind of agree with LeBron saying, yeah, maybe you should get out of there, LeBron, before it gets even worse. But here's the thing. If you're the Cavs GM, you need to make a trade. Why? Because you're going to go for it. Because there's no way you're going to look the fan base and LeBron James in the eye and say, I'm not doing nothing. I'm going to stand pat. Because I know you're leaving. And we all know it. LeBron knows it. Everybody knows it. The popcorn guy in the stands knows it in the Quick and Lows Arena. LeBron's not coming back next year. He's going to L.A. or he's going somewhere else. He's not coming back to Cleveland. That's that's first things first. But still, as the GM of the Cavaliers, the smart thing to do is to stand pat, go with the team you have, get healthy, build some chemistry, and go into the playoffs and see what you got. But they're not going to do that. Why? LeBron James is not going to tolerate that. When you have the best player in the game, LeBron James, and you have a fan base that wants to watch their best player succeed, and they want him to stay and to keep him happy, you need to deliver. So if you're the Cavaliers GM, you're going to make a trade, probably for DeAndre Jordan. What's it going to take to get Jordan? No one really knows. And I don't think DeAndre Jordan is worth that first-round pick that's going to be the Brooklyn Nets, because that's going to be a very first high pick, a high pick because the Nets still aren't playing that extremely well. So the question is, do you really want to risk the future Knowing that LeBron's leaving, knowing that you have a first-round pick just to make a trade, personally, I wouldn't, but I know the Cavaliers are going to because priority number one for them is keeping LeBron James happy. And again, you are not going to look LeBron James in the eye and say, hey, 
I'm not doing anything at the deadline because I know you're leaving. So they're going to make a trade. Yeah, they're definitely going to make a trade. They're definitely going to try and compete. But the roster that they have right now, I, I don't think it's good enough to beat the Golden State Warriors. But I don't it, know. Forget the Warriors. I don't even know if it's good enough to beat the Celtics, honestly. But that's the thing. Like, on the up, on upgrading the team, is it then good enough to beat the Warriors? Because I don't even know if that's possible at the moment. The, the Warriors are on a whole nother level, and this team just is not what it was two years ago. And it's tough to say that, okay, maybe if they add Kemba Walker, uh, that could be the right fit because it gets them that player that's like Kyrie back. Or if Isaiah Thomas can get going and they can add maybe a Lou Williams and have a bench player, or they get both of those guys, or they get a center in DeAndre Jordan. But the one thing that I know that the Cavs shouldn't do is trade that Brooklyn Nets pick. Because I, I truly believe this is LeBron's James last year with the Cleveland Cavaliers. And if you're Cleveland, you have an option. You can try and compete this year and then trade everything away and force yourself in a real mess situation of trying to rebuild, or you can try and rebuild a little bit early and still hold a top seven, maybe top five draft pick this year, in which case you're most likely going to fall off next year and be in that scenario where you're having a top draft pick again and going through that entire rebuild stage like you did when LeBron James first left. So you have a chance to make it a little bit easier on your team in rebuilding and I think that's what the Cavs need to do, and they cannot trade the Brooklyn Nets pick uh, for anything. And if that's what's the case, that they are not going to be able to get some of the Clippers players, then you can't have the, some of the Clippers players. And maybe you have to go after Kemba Walker. And if you're going to get Kemba Walker, great. But I, at the end of the day, I don't know whatever team you build around, it's not going to be enough to make LeBron James stay, possibly. And it's tough. It's tough to believe what the Cavs can do. But winning is the first key because we're seeing them really struggle. They lose sits out of the seven, and shots are flying everywhere on blaming Kevin Love or is Isaiah Thomas the problem or is Dwayne Wade and the relationship between him and LeBron James a problem. The first step is winning because winning makes a lot of things easier very quickly. And that's going to be what they need to do to begin with. And from there, what pieces do we need to add to beat the Golden State Warriors? Because I still think that the Cavs should be able to be beat the Boston Celtics because they have LeBron James. But from there on, they're not good enough to beat the Rockets. They're not good enough to beat the Golden State Warriors, especially the Golden State Warriors. And they need a lot to do in order to get there. And lastly, before we go into Beard Bat and Dude and Dunce of the Week... Jose, Kemba Walker, he's a free agent after next season and is only owed $12 million next year. And I know we've mentioned guys like DeAndre Jordan, Lou Williams, Avery Bradley, or really any player on the Clippers could be dealt. But Walker's an interesting one on Charlotte and because he probably could get traded before the trade deadline. Uh, so, Jose, do you see Kemba Walker getting traded? And if so, which team do you see him going to? You know, it's it's a weird scenario with Kemba Walker, honestly, right? Because 
it's logically he probably isn't gonna get traded, right? You think like you just said, he's owed. He's not owed that much money next year at all. It's basically a one. You know, it's a one year plus rental. Um, he's a, a good point guard. He's not a slouch. He's good. Um, but on the other hand, we've heard Michael Jordan come out and say we're not trading Kemba Walker unless it's for another All Star. So now that creates some friction there. So are they gonna trade him or are they not gonna trade him? Um, so you know the thing is though is that. I actually think he stands put this year. I don't think he gets traded at the deadline. I think it's more likely that you see him get traded in the offseason. Um, and then you're looking at a team like maybe the New York Knicks that are trying to make a strong push for a point guard. I don't think the Knicks have um, what it takes right now to make that kind of trade. But I do see an Eastern Conference team going after Kemba Walker, maybe a team like the Bucks in the offseason. Um, but I don't see Kemba Walker getting traded at the deadline. I think it's more likely you see him get traded in the offseason. I would, I would love to see him get traded to the New York Knicks. Um... I think if the New York Knicks really try and make it happen, they could get Kemba Walker. Uh, is it enough for a playoff push? Possibly, especially if the Wizards are a little hurt. Now, but now the Pistons are getting better. Uh, so the Knicks probably, even if they make a trade right now, I don't know if it's enough to get them over the top. And uh, ultimately, I think there's no reason to trade Kemba Walker unless you get a deal you can't not accept. Uh, so if it includes like the Cavs first, uh, the Brooklyn Nets pitch, you have to go for it. Or if you get a, a certain trade from the New York Knicks that you just cannot decline and you have to go for it, I think that's the type of move that you need to make because no fan base is going to get mad at you if you make a trade where you trade water and you get plenty of pieces back where it's like, we can't not take that deal for Tampa Water they're going to be like, all right, I understand that. Or at least the uh, the fans that are diehards and not just star-hungry are going to clearly understand those type of moves. But So me, I, I think he does get traded because you know there are still teams that truly think that they're playoff contenders uh, that can compete with Golden State if they get one extra piece. Uh, there's always the possibility of who knows what the Cavs are really going to do. So I do kind of think he's going to get traded. I think it's going to be either between, in my mind, one of two teams, the New York Knicks or the Cleveland Cavaliers. Those are the only two teams I can see Kemba Walker really getting traded to at this point. Once again, you're listening to Saras on the Beard, podcast episode 21 with the Super Bowl coming on this Sunday, both Jose and I have the Patriots beating the Philadelphia Eagles. And as always, with Saras on the Beard podcast, we always have our Beard Bat and Dude and Dunst of the Week. And for Beard Bat, I have three of them as we look back on sports history on January 30th. And we're going to go pretty far back to 1971 for this one. And I thought this one was really interesting. UCLA starts their 88-game win streak on January 30th, 1971. They beat UC Santa Barbara 74-61. That would be the first game they'd win in their 88 and a row. So I, that is the first one of them. And then in 1994, the Dallas Cowboys – yeah, it's a tough day for a Giants fan right now uh, – <laughs> The Dallas Cowboys beat the Buffalo Bills 30-13 to in the Super Bowl. Emmitt Smith wins the MVP. We've had to talk about the Patriots versus the Eagles uh, for a Super Bowl matchup. And then uh, uh, for all the Giant fans, 
our in our beer bat, we're given a Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl as well. Uh, in 2000, the St. Louis Rams beat the Tennessee Titans 23-16. to The MVP of that game was Kurt Warner. And as always, following Beardback is our Dude and Dunce of the Week. As Jose has the Dunce of the Week, I have the Dude of the Week. And my Dude of the Week is a little bit of a name twister, but Giannis Antetokounmpo, 31 points, 18 rebounds, 6 assists in last night's 107-95 to win over the 76ers as the 76ers continue to never start Joel Embiid on a bat-to-bat night. So I don't get the reason for that, but they certainly have been doing that all season long and the Bucks able to get the 12-point win and Giannis having a huge game as well with that. And Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Hey, man, trust the process, Nick. Trust the process. Don't question them. Anyway, the Dunks of the Week is going to be Alex Reimer from the Kirk and Callahan radio show. If you guys are not familiar with Alex Reimer, he's the guy that insulted Tom Brady's daughter on a radio segment the other day in which Tom Brady cut the interview short. First things first, let's break this down a little bit. One, watch who you're talking to when you're talking to Tom Brady. That's the GOAT right there, the greatest of all time, best quarterback in NFL history right there. Two, what in your right mind you know, thinks that that's okay to just insult someone's child on a radio show. Like, I just wonder, did you wake up in the morning and say, hey, you know, I think I'm going to call Tom Brady's daughter this this word. I'm not going to repeat what they said because I just it's just so dumb. But, you know, I just wonder, like, how that thought process, you know, you know, fell out. Because, you know, even when we had our radio shows, Nick, we had, like, little notes for ourselves. Do you think, like, it was written, written in his notes? Okay, in this spot, insult Tom Brady's daughter. That's going to be definitely be a hit uh, around the world. Um, I give credit to Tom Brady. He says he doesn't want the guy to be fired, that everybody makes mistakes. Um, but you know what? Maybe it's better that he doesn't get fired and that everybody just knows that he's a jerk. So Alex Reimer, you are the dunce of the week. On, on a show where Tom Brady's on every Monday, that, that to me was the funny, uh, like the standpoint of it all. You're insulting a weekly guest, this kid, not only just like a professional athlete's kid, but a weekly guest kid, someone that clearly respects the boat, uh, the two host of the show to go on every single week but I, I, there, there's certain levels of professionalism in my mind and it clearly wasn't shown there by Alex uh, so completely agree with you Jose on our dunce of the week once again you're listening to Sarasso and the Beard podcast episode 21 I'm Nick Sarasso and I'm the talking beard Jose Rivera and thank you so much for listening to Sarasso and the Beard once again both of us have the New England Patriots winning the Super Bowl as we both believe Tom Brady will pick up his sixth Super Bowl reign and start using his second hand as the greatest all-time quarterback in my mind, at least. Uh, and I believe in yours as well, Jose. Uh, and again, games on this Sunday, a lot going on with the NBA as for our episode 22, we're going to try and put it more towards... The NBA, unless something interesting happens with the MLB when it comes to the signing of players but that they've continuously not done this offseason. But most of our projects will be on the All-Star Dam, players that were announced, as well as we head closer to the trade deadline. We'll really break down all the players that could be dealt, especially in those rumors, and most likely where they'll wind up. But... Enjoy the Super Bowl as the New England Patriots play the Philadelphia Eagles. I know I certainly will. I'm sure Jose will be enjoying that game as well. It will, it's still going to be a tough game if you're a Giants fan at the end of the day. 
Got the chips and dip on deck. That's all that matters. <laughs> and again, thanks for listening to Sarasso and Beard, episode 21. Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today. So let's say you're into yoga or Pilates, or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us with whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type two collagen. Make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. So try the stretch and flex smoothie in tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day.